Good morning. Happy Sabbath. This is not exactly how I expected things to be this particular Sabbath morning. It was absolutely my plan that I was going to be in Boulder live and in person today. But for a lot of you who are online, I guess it really doesn't make that big of a difference. But uh, it makes a difference to me. But here's the reason that I'm not there. You see, my plan was to come out there and be there for the 6th and the 13th for this Sabbath and next. And then I was going to come back to Florida and be gone on the 20th because that was the expected delivery date for my daughter-in-law, my son Nathan, uh, and daughter-in-law Karen, for their little one to be born. So my plan was to leave very early on Monday morning of this last week and drive out to Colorado was all set to do it, had my alarm set and everything, and that night, uh, just after midnight, Nathan came into our room and said, it's time, she's going into labor. So that scrapped all my plans for what we were going to do, but for the very best of reasons. And now baby Florence has been born, and what a lovely little darling she is, and how happy I am, and thankful to the Lord that I was able to be here uh, when this took place. So uh, for that reason, I'm coming to you by video today. I apologize for that. It's not my first choice, but it is uh, what we can do this Sabbath. And then I'll be there, uh, Lord willing. At this point, nothing about 2021 has been for sure for us. So Lord willing, I'll be there the next several Sabbaths uh, in Boulder, and we'll finally get things going along those lines. But but I want to, to work through a text today. I actually want to pick up where we left off when I was actually there a few weeks ago in John chapter 4. And I want to pick up on this story because there's another piece that comes up in it that I think is very important. It's very important to us as individuals, but it's also very important to us as a group. And particularly as I'm beginning to learn about the group uh, and, and understand and seeking to know God's purpose in it. So there's going to be two two conclusions slash appeals at the end of this message today. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Back to the beginning of this. And in fact, let's say a prayer as we get ready uh, to read God's Word. Father in heaven, be with us now. Send your Spirit. Uh, open our hearts and minds. Help us to take from this what is most important. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to take you back to the story uh, of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and it's found in John chapter 4. Now, I'm just going to read a little from the beginning of the chapter here to remind you of the context. Jesus had been baptizing and in the area of Judea, but then he left Judea to go back to Galilee. In verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? And then their interaction gets going from there. But there's a couple details very relevant to what we're talking about today contained in this. First of all, Jesus goes to the well. He remains there. He's tired. He's hungry. The disciples go into town to buy food. Now, the woman comes and they begin this interaction. 
about water. And Jesus talks about if you knew who was asking you, you would ask him for water. He would give you living water. They go back and forth for a little while. He's talking about the Spirit being given to those who believe. She's still very much in a literal context. They get down a little ways. And uh, verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So this is actually... Uh, from what we have recorded in the story here, kind of the extent of the miraculousness in this interaction. Jesus speaks to her about things he would have no way of knowing. Now that's relevant because she's going to say something later on that goes way beyond what actually took place here. But that's how it is sometimes when you inter interact with Jesus and you interact with his power. You realize his greatness that exceeds far beyond even the simplicity of what he might have said. Now, in fairness, uh, this is the recorded version of this story. So exactly what was said and how the conversation went, and if it was longer or shorter, we don't know. But these are the, uh, the key moments, the key sayings in this conversation. And Jesus does that, that little unveiling to her that, yes, I know all about you. I know your history. I know who you are. And from there, she takes it in another direction, maybe out of embarrassment, maybe out of interest, maybe a combination of both things. But she takes it in the direction of, of the question of our ancestors worship on the mountain. You Jews say Jerusalem is the place. We talked a little bit about the context of that, that conflict the last time we went through this. And Jesus goes on, verse 21, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. That is always a check a balance that we need to have in our lives. We need to go back to this passage and we've got to keep it fresh within ourselves that the, the worshipers that the Father seeks are those who worship in spirit and in truth. Both things matter. We need to continue to grow in our understandings of truth. We need to continue to grow in, in our openness and awareness of the spirit. We can't go off on one route or just off on the other route. These are things, they go together. They're like, they're like the wheels on either side of the vehicle. You can't take one side off and the thing still goes forward. It matters. Truth matters. But truth is also dead without spirit. Spirit matters. But spirit gets a little weird without truth. So we got to keep those things together. And, and we can do that. We have the opportunity to do that. And I think that is, that is one of the unique realities about being a Seventh-day Adventist is, is that we have a tradition of both of those things. Now, if you look at our history, we have different times where we're all truth or, or maybe we leaned a little too far the other way. Typically, historically, though, over the last 
50, 60, 70, 80 years, our tendency is going to steer a little harder on the truth side than the spirit side. But still, just because we've made that mistake doesn't mean truth gets thrown out. It matters. Truth matters. So we'll develop that more as we go, not today, but on other days. It comes to the end of this. In verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then the moment, the remarkable moment, the first time in recorded scripture where Jesus just flat comes out and says this. Verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He chooses to reveal himself as Messiah, specifically with those words for the first time that we see recorded to a Samaritan woman. Here's what's interesting about Jesus. Jesus is all about accomplishing his mission. He's all about doing what God has sent him to do. And he's going to do it in the manner that is going to be most effective at getting it done. And isn't it interesting that the person to whom he could have this moment of revelation would be a Samaritan woman? And why would he do this? Well, because he knew her. Now, not because he had known her from before, but because of God's divine revelation to him, God telling Jesus, this is an important person, speak to this person. And this whole encounter that they've had, because something amazing is about to happen here. And that's what we want to get to today. So, so that's, our, that's our introduction. Let's get to today's material. Verse 27. Just then, right after Jesus reveals himself to this woman, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, now notice her words, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, first of all, Jesus obviously didn't spend enough time with her to tell her everything she ever did. But he interacted with her enough that she knew he knew. She knew that Jesus knew who she was. Yet here he was still speaking to her, telling her who he was. And, and she says, this is interesting how she says it. She recognizes that she's coming to the people of the town, not from a position of authority, because they've not seen her as that. In fact, it's very likely the reason she was at the well at noon was to avoid being around everyone else because uh, here's someone whose history is not great, at least according to their cultural standards of the time. And, and so she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And I want to suggest to you that, that sometimes asking a question can be a much more powerful witness than trying to state something is true. If she'd come into town and said, I found the Messiah, I don't know exactly what kind of response she would have gotten for that. But she went back to the town and said, I just met somebody who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She's playing on the hopes. She's playing on their hearts. She's, she's going a place where they already want to go. And that's a very important point when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to reaching people for Jesus, is not to start with what we think ought to be told, but rather start 
with where people already want to go. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So this is going on in the town. But there's another thing happening simultaneously at the well. The woman is gone. Now it's Jesus and his disciples. And, and here we get to the heart uh, of, of the message for today. And in fact, the title that I've given this message today. And here we go. Verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. You remember, that's how the whole thing started. Jesus was tired. He was hungry. They went into town to get food. They came back. And they said, Rabbi, eat something. And then verse 32 here. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Now again, they're going to go immediately to the very literal. Why wouldn't they? The whole point of this stop was to get food. Verse 33, then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? And verse 34, catch this verse. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So the most important thing for Jesus was to do the will of the one who sent him, the father who sent him. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Now, he's not literally meaning, I don't have to eat anything as long as I'm doing these things. What he's saying is the deepest reality for me, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. That's an interesting way of saying that, isn't it? He goes on, don't you have a saying, it is still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. What's he talking about? Well, as Jesus is speaking this, the people are beginning to come out from the town. And he uses a saying, apparently this was a saying in Judaism when, when someone was trying to rush things, you would say, it's still four months to the harvest. And in other words, what that meant was, stop, stop arguing about this, it's not time yet. But Jesus says, it is time. I'm telling you it's time. Look at the fields, they are ripe. And as he's saying this, the Samaritans are coming out of the village and coming to the well. Now, first of all, the disciples themselves would have never considered the Samaritans a group to be harvested, if you will, that they would be, that Jesus would want to reach out to them at all. So they don't even recognize it as a valid crop, much less that it's something that is ripe. Now we'll go on down just a little bit here to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So the woman, she, she interacted with Jesus, had a transformational experience, 
She went back to the people that were her own. She shared with them in a context that would interest them, not shut them down. They came out of interest based on what she said. They heard for themselves, and then they themselves became believers, no longer because of the woman, but because of their own experience. This is, this is a perfect example for evangelism. You have to have that initial experience with Jesus, but then you go back to the ones that are your own, and you interact with them in a way that makes them interested. And then they come because of you. It's kind of like you take their hand and you have Jesus' hand, and they come because of you, but then your goal is not to continue to be the one between them and Jesus. Your goal is to connect their hand with Jesus, and then you step back. Because then the system, the process, the cycle can repeat itself as a new person has an interaction with Jesus and then they become a part of this process themselves. That's how it's supposed to go. But now I want to take you back. The title of the sermon is, What is Your Food? And here I want to address the, the two things I talked about at the beginning, the two, two conclusions slash appeals for this. And the first is personal. It's for each one of us on our own. And the question is simple. What is your food? Jesus makes this statement. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What I want to suggest to you is you have a hunger in your heart. You have a hunger in your heart that you cannot satisfy with the very best of foods that you can eat through your mouth. You have a hunger in your heart that could only be satisfied by doing the will of the one who sent you, by doing the will of the Father. Now, saying that assumes a number of things. One thing is, God has a calling on your life. God has a purpose for your life. And not only that, God has given you skills and abilities and gifts that will enable you to do it. Now, it won't be easy. It might be really hard. It might be a real struggle. But what is suggested in this passage, and I believe it's true both from experience and because I believe the word, is that there is a hunger in you that is only satisfied when you engage yourself in God's purpose for your life. Now, that doesn't mean everybody quits what they're doing and becomes a pastor or becomes a, a professor of religion or or a street preacher, or whatever. Now, some of you may. Some of you may. I was a chemical engineer and quit doing that and became a pastor. My wife was an English major. She quit doing that, and God called her to be a religion professor. So, so yes, it does happen that you walk away from things to take it up. But there are other people who remain in their context, like the Samaritan woman who stays in her context and becomes this powerful missionary. What is your context? What is your food? There is a hunger in you that will only be satisfied when you have engaged yourself in what God has called you to do and to be to build up his kingdom. And part of the fun of the whole experience is discovering exactly what that is. There's a lots of ways to do that, and different personalities will respond to different kinds of ways. One of the ways is, is spiritual gifts inventories and and, and sometimes churches get very involved in those things and very involved in helping members find ministries to be involved in. And that is one approach. That it can be very much a, a church-centered church coming up with ministries and ideas. 
But short of that, it doesn't mean that you can't still participate. You can't still do the calling God has put on your heart just because the church hasn't organized the right activity for you. Because each one of us lives 24 hours every day and we make decisions every minute of every day. What if we turned those lives, our lives, over to God for him to guide us as we made those decisions during the day? What would happen in our context, in our lives, in the realities we already have? Could we be like the Samaritan woman? Obviously, you don't need an, a, a spotless past because she didn't have that. What you need is willingness and openness and a belief that God has called you and given you what you need to do his purpose. So that's the personal appeal. And we'll develop that more in the days ahead. But I believe each one of us has an opportunity to do God's will in our lives and to make a difference for his kingdom. But now I want to take one more step. I want to talk to us as a community, as a church family. What is our food? What has the Lord called the Boulder Seventh-day Adventist Church to be in this time? Now, there's a long history of this church, and I'm still learning it. I'm still coming to, to understand it and appreciate it, and it's a remarkable history, and the Lord has done amazing things through it. In fact, I'll give you an example. Uh, others have sown and you have reaped. Those of us like myself that have come in to be a part of this community just recently, the building. I didn't build this building. I didn't raise the money for this building. Most of you didn't build the building or raise the money for it. There may be some here who go all the way back to when it was put there, but, but most of us have not. We have simply reaped the blessing of the generation before. And the generation before has left quite a legacy and quite a place. But let me just tell you, briefly, as, as I'm beginning to try to understand this community and the reality, is that the legacy of the past and the things that carried this facility in the past are not necessarily going to be the things that carry it forward in this location in the future. Why do I say that? Well, historically, there was a, there was a whole institutional infrastructure that surrounded this church. There was hospital, there was school, there were all these other things. Now, we're still linked with a school, with a very good school, but it's not right next door like it used to be. So the question becomes, what now is the role of this community? Historically, it played a very important role in an established institutional community. That established institutional community is no longer here. So that food is no longer the food of this community. What now? What is the task now? Boulder Church finds itself in an interesting place at an interesting time in one of the more interesting cities in the United States. What role can we play in this time? Now, I confess to you, I don't know the answer to this yet. And I look forward to pursuing this question with the various groups and with the various individuals in this church. But I feel like there's something in this Samaritan woman's story that is relevant to us. That fields that to us don't look anywhere near ready for harvest 
Could it be with just the right seed, something remarkable could happen? Who is that seed? What is that seed? What is that purpose in this time? What is our food? Again, I don't know that answer. And I don't even know that any one of us specifically knows that answer. But I do know one who wants us to find that answer. And I do know he gives us his Holy Spirit to guide us to that answer. So I look forward to the days and the weeks and the months and even the years ahead as we wrestle with this question, as we seek to understand God's purpose for us in this day. I know he will lead. I know he will show us. Because he will put a hunger in us. And that hunger will only be satisfied do the will of the one who sent us and accomplish his purpose. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray your spirit to guide, to lead, to show us the way. Give us a heart like the Samaritan woman that we can be, make an impact in the seemingly most unlikely of places. In Jesus' name, amen.